Guys, we're smashing the patriarchy this week. We're leaning in. We're saying curse words. Consider yourself warned. I think you should go on birthright. POTUS birthright. I like POTUS that. POTUS birthright. It basically will be that. And he will meet some hot Israeli soldier who will become the fourth uh, lady. Hello, Jews and Russian foreign ministers. This is Unorthodox. I'm Stephanie Butnick, joined this week by Leah Leibowitz and special guest host Shira Talishkin. Mark is in Alaska. We'll be talking to all Jews today, no Gentiles. First, we've got Maya and Dean Jenkowitz, the co-owners of Jack's Wife Frida, which serves South African Israeli comfort food at two locations in Manhattan and just came out with a cookbook. Then we're talking to Dr. Barry Holtz, professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary and the author of Rabbi Akiva, the Sage of the Talmud. It's going to be a great show. First things first, Shira, you are not Mark. I am sadly, I'm not Mark. I don't know about sadly. We're kind of like that you're not Mark. Tell us about yourself. Who are you? I just kind of wandered in off the street. Here I am. Um, so I'm Shira. I produce the show with Alyssa. And this week I get to be inside the studio. So usually you sit on the other side of this glass divide here at Argo Studios. What does it feel like on the other side of the of the iron glass ceiling? <laughs> um, I am like have newfound respect for you guys. It's much scarier on this side. That's how I feel like when I ho- like sit in for Mark. I'm just like, oh, that's hard. He does a lot of work. Also, because right, usually I live in Boston, so I actually spend every Tuesday like morning with this like pounding heart, worried that one of the guests didn't show up, or like somebody was really boring, or like I got the date wrong. Like or I don't just know. Like, Holy fuck! I live in like, Boston, and that's <laughs> a you horrible say, city, like, and I need to so get. Would out. you say you go to school in Boston? <laughs> well, it's actually Cambridge. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Um, So I'm finishing up my master's at the Harvard Divinity School. I study early Egyptian Christian monasticism, what's known as the Desert Fathers. So these are basically the monks who live. By the way, the greatest name for a a punk band ever. Yeah, or like or like a tent at Coachella. Yeah, (laughs) are there tents there? I don't know how it works. Did a group of my friends go as the Desert Daddies for Halloween one year? Like maybe. I love that. They're very. I love love Divinity School humor. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. Look, none, right. none of us are ever going to have a life, so we may as well make some inside jokes. And joke they about may as well like be really good jokes because we're right. really, really smart. Because right. six people will get it, so that's great. <laughs> right. This is the point to mention that you are a rabbi's daughter. Yes, which is why I'm obviously studying fourth century Egyptian monks. That's right. It's like, fuck you, dad. It's my way to I'm rebel. Gonna study Christ- early I'm going to Christianity. Do not only Christianity, but in Egypt, <laughs> kind of like where we went out from. Uh to be fair, Rabbi Akiva would have fit, like, right in with the monks, so... He's, like, a chill guy. Look at you being all on topic of our of So, our what do you do for the show? Today. Tell us a little... Like, tell our listeners wh- what, like, what they can thank you for. I uh, pick the guests and decide when they come on, and... Also, like before each show, I'll like talk to the guests. I'll get a sense of what they want to talk about. Try and make sure that their time in the studio will be good. Now, we are very difficult people to to work with. What is your least favorite aspect of working with the three of us? And who and, is and, your least favorite? Yeah, and, host? and who would you say is the least? Maybe attentive? someone not in this room who like can't defend themselves. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Could be anyone. <laughs> to be honest, working with Mark and Alyssa is actually awesome. Mark like always sends like random thank you notes, like Shira. Just like you're doing a great job. And you're like, Mark. Oh, he's Mark. really good like that. He'll be like, you were really spot on today, like in this week's show. And I'm like, thanks, Dad. I really like, I like that. I feel validated. You feel like the fifth the fifth Oppenheimer child. Yes, yeah. yes. And I'm like, give me allowance. And he's like, okay, here's a penny. <laughs> what am I going to buy? He's like, to, go to the corner store and buy some candy. And now you have candy. to memorize all the pie, all the pie numbers up to the thousandth point. Okay, guys. 
I went to the most epic wedding this weekend. Uh, I mentioned it last week, my friends Ruben and Juliana. It was basically an unorthodox focus group in the basement of Park Avenue Synagogue. And I was like kind of a celebrity. I got stopped several times, people being like, I love unorthodox. Are you Stephanie Hold from on, unorthodox? That voice? I, someone actually said, I oh, know. I recognize you from your voice. And I was like, is this the best day of my life or is this someone else's wedding and like also the best day of oh, their it's life? Oh, it's all about you. Yeah, no, I was like, is this a thousand my... percent about you. It was really, really incredible. I met, shout out to Gail Weiss, who's niece was there who's best friends with the bride's sister who was the bride's elementary school teacher like and listened to the podcast and heard the shout out last week and according to a text message fell off her chair and she signed the text message to i guess it was to her niece hugs and knishes so i think we should like appropriate gail weiss's sign off hugs and knishes Uh, hugs and knishes a lot of people were like you should talk more how do you how do you get a word in edgewise (laughs) with those guys and i'm like i don't know i have to like literally send them to alaska to host the show and like you know, be the star. But anyway, it was amazing. And I had never seen, it was one of those really long horrors that had shtick mm. in the end. Oh my God. And I'd never seen it before and I loved it. Like where like the bride and groom are seated They're next seated. to each other and everyone's performing in Everyone's front of performing yeah. and everyone like has these dances and these t-shirts and everyone just like is very prepared. There's always t-shirts. So it's what, like the most stressful part of a wedding. So what is that? Like if you're going a guest and there's going to be, do you know there's going to be shtick? Oh yes. And you plan for it. And it's like... Right. So usually you'll do some sort of skit. Like often it's like around when the couple met or it depends like where you are in their life. And you like bring funny stuff. Usually you'll like make signs. I don't know. We always end up doing a skit. Some people like make up songs. So Can I just tell you? Yeah. Fuck the horror. I think it's a terrible fucking tradition. And I felt this way since the moment I was required to perform it in my own wedding. Here's what I think is going on with this focaccia dance, right? So so here are the, the pioneers, right? And and I know like 300 people are going to write in and saying that I got it all wrong. But fuck it. This is this is my alternative fact. Yeah. So here are the, the, the first Zionist pioneers who are moving from Russia to, to Palestine, right? To start uh, the state of Israel. And they're bringing with them these Russian folk dances, which then get codified as, oh, Israeli folk dancing, because like now it has a smattering of Arabic and stuff like that in it. And then American Jews are like, oh, my God, it's so Exodus. It's so Ari Ben Canaan to do like the Hora. And then they do the Hora like dumbasses. And it just looks fucking ridiculous. Why are you doing a 19th century Russian dance at the basement of the Park Park Avenue Synagogue? Of Ashkenormativity. Oh, my Lord. And Mark, like I always make fun of Mark's segues, they're like kind of difficult to do. But you know what? I'm going to do them because we are hashtag smashing the hashtag patriarchy. Marwan Barghouti. <laughs> Haven't heard from him in a while. <laughs> Speaking, Speaking of like of what Jewish dancing yeah. at weddings. How about so, that Palestinian so, terrorist who killed five Israelis? So now? he was last. We last heard from him. He's leading a hunger strike to protest conditions in Israeli jails. He was caught on video like snacking in his cell furtively. Um so seemingly not on a hunger strike. And now he has issued a list of demands to the head of Israel's prisons. Do you want to know what the demands are? Please. Among the demands are 20 channels of television, unrestricted books and magazines, air conditioning, a greater selection of items available for purchase in the canteen. This is all from the Times of Israel. Family visits, the restarting of open university studies, public telephone use, and annual medical checks for prisoners. Some of those things sound quite reasonable. Like 20 channels on your TV. Well, like medical checks. It's like... Uh, like seeing your family. There are currently only seven channels on my TV. Uh, two of them are just only with soap operas, which I do not watch. So I need at least 13 more channels. This is what an 11-year-old would do if, if like, in charge of, like, a hunger strike. We want better snacks. This is if my children went on a hunger strike. Like, this is the list of the man's. I feel like... More TV and more candy. Speaking of people who also don't like <laughs> the Jews, move over Barghouti... 
Hamza bin Laden is getting into the family business. Uh, Hamza the, bin Laden. The 28-year-old son of Osama bin Laden is climbing the ranks of Al-Qaeda. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh I mean, like, to be fair, with the last name bin Laden, it's, like, probably hard to break into other businesses. No, it's exactly the opposite. It's like, dude, haven't you learned anything from, like, Julian Lennon? If you are bin Laden's kid, do not try to be a bin Laden. Like, your dad was, like, the better beetle and will always be the better beetle. Like, be an accountant. I mean, it'd be anything. Oh, I love that. He's an anything. accountant. Yeah. Or, like, an actuary. Yeah, like, something really go like the that. opposite. So he, his, his, like, latest foray or his first foray into, into, the, into the biz, he released an audio recording telling people to, quote, Look for the Jews everywhere and kill him. And in a separate video... Which, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry, is so fucking cliche. Really? You start with the Jews? Like, that's your thing? That's like, yeah, uh, I'm going to record a <laughs> remake of, like, Hey Jude. Like, don't do your dad's greatest hit. Like, find your own ethnic group to hate and be with his, like... Yeah, like the, the Kurds. Okay, but, right. Just do your own thing, Like, start man. on your own. Like, I like that. Yeah, branch out on your own. I also feel like we've got enough going on right now. Like, I can't deal with another Bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> I can barely follow the news. Please. Speaking of the news, look at these segues. Our president is heading to Israel. Um, first, some... And Palestine. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. First, some itinerary drama. First, his social media director released the list of countries they were going to. They had Israel, then they had Palestine on a different day. Everyone was like, what? Then, Channel 2 is reporting that during a planning meeting, a senior member... Or, sorry, a member of the U.S. delegation said that Trump would be visiting the Western Wall, but Netanyahu could not come because, quote, it's not your territory, it's part of the West Bank. That obviously led, according to the reports, there was like screaming on the other end of the line from the Israelis, and then the Trump administration issued a statement saying these comments were not authorized communication. It's almost like this administration is staffed by absolute fucking morons who know fuck all about the world. But they like yelled it like, you can't come there. Like, why would you be able to go there? Like, so- I appreciate not like only their ignorance about diplomacy, but their confidence. Yes. Right? Like that's like that's like what just marks this whole administration. It's like ignorant confidence. But I like that because like, you know, you could get away with it to a certain point. But this is a great Latin motto, by the way. Ignorance <laughs> and confidence. <laughs> I'd say just like it's like where is Jared Kushner and all or like he like if he has one job it's probably to like keep them from saying that the Kotel that the Western Wall is like in Palestinian territory he doesn't have one job. and he recognizing has, Palestine he has like, seven jobs it's the Middle East peace process fixing the economy like those are all his ghost jobs. writing Ivanka's book that's right keeping Trump yeah. from tweeting but I have to say this is like a failure on his religious like on his Jewish schooling like I feel like we need to call like the Frisch school and be like do you, what do you teach on this Orthodox Jews have failed on a lot of things. Teaching that, like, the Kotel is part of Jewish Israel is, like, not something they're pretty skimpy on. That's right. And now the questions and the answers ring so hollow in my mind. The reasons change the agenda face up against the wailing wall, up against the wailing wall. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. 
This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. All right, guys, it is time for our first Jewish guest. We're here with Maya Jankalovitz, who is the owner, along with her husband, Dean, of Jack's Wife Frida, the wildly popular pair of identically named restaurants uh, downtown in Manhattan. Um, in March, they published a cookbook of the same name. They also feed me regularly. 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 Yeah. The restaurants are amazing. Oh. And the idea is like you walk in and you sort of feel like you're in someone's like dining room, someone's living room. And that's how I feel. <laughs> Yes, that's how we got to get comfortable and know each other for sure. <laughs> so so back in 2012, when you had just opened your first location, New York Magazine called, described Jack's Wife Frida as, I think, South African, Israeli, Jewish grandmother cuisine. Mm, Is I that correct? That. That's what they said. And it was like a blessing from Hashem. <laughs> because we, you know, people told us before we open, you need a concept, you need a concept. And we didn't even know what that meant. But when um, Rob and Rob from uh, New York Mag called it that. You were like, we oh, were that's so what happy. it is. Yes, I loved it. So how'd you get the name Jack's Wife Frida? So Jack and Frida were Dean, my husband's grandparents, from South, Jews from South Africa. And um, I think he, we decided to name it after them uh, just out of that memory of, you know, hospitality and love and feeling comfortable and having fights at your grandparents' house. But I feel like people come in and they're like, who's Frida? Who's Frida? And then you have this really nice story that it's like, actually... Yeah, I'm, I'm Frida. What do you want? <laughs> Yes, sometimes they come in and they think I'm Frida. And one time the hostess was so tired of people asking for Frida and she said, Frida's dead. <laughs> and that was just before she left. I think she, she was running out of stamina, but they got really nervous. Okay, so this is a perfect segue to, to like the big question that I have for you. Uh, I have immense admiration for anyone who does what you do because I think, you know, this is such a competitive town. It's such a difficult business. Uh, and you're downtown you see a lot of very poorly behaved customers, right? Mm -hmm. What is the absolute worst shitty person behavior, self-entitled asshole oh, that so you've hard. ever seen? You know, there's there's a lot of stories that go there. It's it's hard. I know it's entertaining. I know most of your <laughs> most of your clients are like great, or like you know, me and Ben, who supportive, are like, thank right? you like, for, thank you for the great food. But you and know, there's definitely a community. But there are a few. Yeah, you, know, you want to get to that really fast. Oh, absolutely. You did get there. That's what he. Look how excited he, was he is. Just look at right his in. eyes. I mean, he likes. He likes well, to the, go there. you know, the truth is that even most of the customers are you know so lovely and 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 just add to the whole vibe that's there. Even those bad ones, and there's some bad stories out there our whole thing is turning them around and making a friend out of those and we have a handful of people that it started really bad someone told me you know a woman should never do the door be a maitre d someone told me i'm a racist someone told dean the effing jew i don't know if i could say that shouldn't be doing the door people get really angry when they can't get a table and the whole psychology of the door so is... someone came into your restaurant your no, restaurant no, this was before oh and said like a fucking jew should not work oh the God, door you can say that your... on the radio <laughs> well on this show this is very niche um <laughs> we know they, that, that was something that happened to dean many years ago i remember the owner had to like reach out to this guy and i think still like we got a, a really nice apology or something but um people go crazy when they can't get a table and people mm -hmm. go crazy when 
there's this whole psychological thing that happens when you walk into a restaurant. Does anyone know who I am? Do they know who, do they know that I, people get really nervous and they project a lot of that on us. So I have so many years of experience of doing the door and dealing with those people. And uh, I love it. I kind of wait for it because I love turning them around and showing them you don't have to behave like this, not getting into a fight. And then they kind of get lost. You're kind like, of yes, like, Mr. President, I know who you are <laughs> and you're still not getting food. Like, well, have, the, funniest have some thing, soup. the funniest part is when they when they come in with the, do you know who I am? I, I think I said once, no, but I can find out for you. <laughs> <laughs> so... so we're all familiar with like the downtown, the, the surge of like trendy Ashkenazi food, right? Like you have Russ and Daughters Cafe, you now have Sedell's, you have Mile End. Was it important for you guys to sort of say like, we want to showcase a different kind of is of, of Jewish food and, and have, you know, something like a peri Ashkenormative. Yeah. Like, where we've been de- dealing with the word Ashkenormative, which has been launched at me correctly. But so like, was it important for you to have, you know, the peri-peri chicken, the Israeli salad, sort of have things that you yeah. don't, it's not bagels and locks, basically. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, also I'm sure I heard you speaking about Israel. You know, Israelis are, you know, your jokes, you get it. They're very proud of whatever, of, of everything that's Israeli. So, so maybe in a, you know, I'm guilty of having a little bit of it and I knew that oh these are such simple staples and they're not out there and everyone should like we have a Mediterranean breakfast it wasn't even on the menu when we opened it's our staff it was our staff meal because that's what I ate in the army eggs salad Lebanese yogurt, some pita bread, some avocado, if if you were lucky. And I was eating that every morning with some of the waitresses. And every time we would eat it, people would be like, oh, my God, what is that? Oh, my God. You know, what is this exotic <laughs> meal? Did you eat that in the army? Did they give you that? Yeah. You were in the army, too? Yeah, that's what we eat. I, mean, I love that. I mean, that's awesome. amazing. Because so... Ben Cohen gets that every time we go there for brunch. And he's just like, it's his mind is blown by like the perfect amount of all the things and you get different days. <laughs> yeah, I like, mean, sometimes we get the critique of um, why am I tra- paying $12 for this? I can make this at home. But that's So then you the came point. out with the cookbook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it came out that's with exactly the cookbook. Right. Go make but it also that's the whole point of, of eating out for us is, you know, we want to be the kind of place that you can eat what you would eat at home, not a special occasion kind of meal that you eat once in a month or once in two months, but come eat here every day because this is the kind of food you would eat at home. So, so much of your story almost reads like a fairy tale, right? Like you come from Israel and Dean's in from South Africa and you guys kind of came with like no money, no safety net, found each other, kind of planned this restaurant where the menu wasn't even a thing like a few weeks before it opens. <laughs> um, were there ever moments where you guys were just like, all right, this this is this was a dumb idea. Like let's let's go back to the drawing board. I think we couldn't allow ourselves to say that. We had a lot of fear, like a lot of fear. I have a lot of crying memories, a lot of tear <laughs> memories. We also had a, you know, our first uh, son was 4 years old when we opened and then I had a baby when we opened and we couldn't afford a babysitter, so I was, you know, doing the floor with the baby strapped to my back like in Africa and I was like whatever, I have to do this and we just we we really haven't we did not not have a life for the first like, couple baby, of years. Like, baby, you work the door. You're like, <laughs> you do something. Just, where does that, like, we have to do this come from? Like, it just, do you guys just love people that much? Because you know, I feel like I could last, like, two days being friendly to everybody. Well, you know, it's like a little, uh, I don't know if you wanted to go there, it's a little more spiritual, but we, you know, we both did the door always. And we, 
I don't know if I guess you could say love people. I kind of like that. It sounds very friendly. <laughs> but um, we um, Israelis known for loving people <laughs> and being friendly. <laughs> but okay, but it was. What do you mean by spiritual? So I we really believe that, like you say, it's it's downtown. It's trendy. Places are cool. It's hard to get into places. I feel like so many customers are are bruised and punished by what goes on when when you're eating out. As as exciting as it is, because the city is the best place in the world to eat out. I think. You know, you still come in and then that abuse system starts. The person who came in and said, you know who I am, he'll say it to the wrong person at the door. You know, she'll get her feelings hurt. She'll be a little rude to the next person. And it's like a snowball. Everyone's getting their feelings hurt. Everyone's feeling a little insecure. Everyone's putting on a little mask or that they're that they're tougher than who they are. And that's how, you know our life, you know, then they'll let it out on the taxi driver, he lets it out on his wife, that's how we get a little antsy and angry. And I feel like when we, you know, you said that we love people, if I find those people that need, you know, they need a little boundaries sometimes, but they also need to know it's okay, you can just you can just be here. I got you. Don't worry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can sit Here's and have your Here's some peer chicken. Don't Here's worry some- <laughs> about it. <then. laughs> right. Exactly. So something like that. And, you know, when they leave a little bit lighter than they came in, then I feel like we did this kind of duty to the world. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they'll be a little nicer to the taxi driver. The taxi driver will be a little nicer to his wife. Okay. The most important question I have is what do your kids eat? Like what is their favorite thing to eat on the menu? Ugh, you know, somebody just asked uh, my little five-year-old what he loves to eat. What's his favorite food at the restaurant? And he said... French fries and water. <laughs> you're like, you're gonna have to, yeah, the kid, French fries are really good. You're not working the door ever. Yeah, you're like, at least say like the nana tea. Yeah. Like at least say something. Right. Someone's <laughs> like, oh, what drink should I get? They're like, the water here is amazing. They actually get it from Israel. It's really funny. He loves is there water. water in is there Israel's a not. Dish that you really wish you could serve, but it's just like too much of a hassle to create in a restaurant setting. Mm. Like something yes. that would spiritually be yes, so there, great. There is. There totally. There's a bunch of them, and they are. We always think of making them as specials, and I'm thank you for saying that because we talk about it all the time it's always at the back of our head so yeah um um jachnun mm. and malawa oh. i don't know how they would i don't know how people will take I don't to even those know what those things are because i am ashkenormative <laughs> will you help me explain it it's like dough it's like a lot of dough it's not healthy it's yemenite it's yemenite i don't know if it would go Buttery with the dough, trends deep fried oh sounds awesome. delicious and then this like and tomato that's like yes. pulsed mm. to like Ooh, i love it's that it's so good it's so good there was a place in israel we used to go to what was it called oh come to me oh that chain that yemenite no, chain. Nargila, yeah. oh my god, so impressive. That place was hardcore. When you, so final question for you: When you get back, like when you go to Israel, what's where's the first place you go to eat? Um, my mom's kitchen. <laughs> yeah. That's a good but answer. I, but we, I don't, I don't. You know, everywhere is great there. I'm really happy with with a Burger Ranch. <laughs> No, I like, kind of want to go exist? now. I don't know. I don't, I don't does, know. But... I don't know. Oh. Well, we get a lot of Israelis that come in, and we serve a green shakshuka. And shakshuka is the Middle Eastern baked eggs dish and tomato, red tomatoes. And we do green green tomatillos. So when the Israelis come in, they get very upset. Okay, maze, uh, green shakshuka. <laughs> like, we're like, we're making people eat Israeli cuisine. Like, this is a big deal. And they're like, nope, you're not doing it right. And That's they right. always return it. And the, and the whole staff knows. The whole staff knows. <laughs> Israelis returning uh, the shakshuka. Excuse me, again. this is green. So, uh, what, yeah. so what do they get? This like, is not a real shakshuka. <laughs> Please tell the chef. <laughs> so what happens? What did, like? What Lordy. do you give them instead? They're, they're happy with anything else. They just <laughs> so love that they know better. They love that. 
They're like, we're not falling then, for this one. And then I love telling them they're right. You know, yeah. they're right. It's not. It's yeah, not, our it, bad. I'm sorry. My mistake. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Maya, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, the welcome. cookbook is Jack's Wife Frida. The restaurant is also Jack's Wife Frida. There's two of them. Google it. If you're in New York, you should, mm-hmm. you should, you should, you should go and you'll probably and, see me and there. And maybe you'll run into <laughs> Stephanie yes. Butler. We'll definitely run into I'll Steph. be eating the green shakshuka <laughs> being like, this is like such authentic Israeli. <laughs> this is what they eat in Israel. <laughs> thank you, Maya. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So nice. You guys are awesome. Thanks. I want the waiter with the water. I want the waiter with the water for my daughter. I want the waiter with the water for my daughter. Cause my daughter has a daughter for some water on the tray. You got a menu that'll send you. You got a menu that'll send you. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. All right, guys, pencils down. Our next guest is uh, Dr. Barry Holtz. He is the Theodore and Florence Baumritter Professor of Jewish Education at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and most recently the author of Rabbi Akiva, the Sage of the Talmud. Welcome, Dr. Holtz. Happy to be here. Thanks for, thanks for coming in. It's a great book. Thank you. I really glad you liked it. I, I tell people um, when they started, I said, uh, you know, I don't want to give you a spoiler alert, but it's not a happy ending. <laughs> he dies at the end. Yeah. Oh, now you gave it away. Oh, no. I don't, but don't so, say how. Let me, <laughs> let me ask you, so here's what you write. This is literally the first paragraph of the introduction. Consider for a moment the following thought experiment. Let us think of the Babylonian Talmud, not as we usually do, not as a vast compendium of laws, legends, debates, and interpretations, but rather as a massive, multi-volume, postmodern experimental novel. Wilder than Moby Dick, beyond the imagination of James Joyce, more internally self-referential than anything dreamed up by David Foster Wallace. Hundreds of pages of dialogue, discussions that start but never end, organized, it seems, on the surface by free association, and filled with hyperlinked cross-references across the wide expense of its domain. It has no beginning and no conclusion. It just is. So my question is this. Um, uh, first of all, I think that's a, that's a great, terrific kind of, you know, encapsulation of, of, of the Talmud. 
But why then don't we read it as literature? Why have we become so accustomed to, to looking at it with this kind of distance of like, oh, it's the law and the awe? Like, why aren't we so much more excited about Rabbi Akiva than, say, Hamlet? Well, to begin with, uh, you'd have to take into account about 1,500 years of people studying Talmud and mostly focusing on the legal sections. Um, in fact, one of the interesting things that one sees in the scholarship about stories as told in the Talmud is that by and large in, in the yeshiva tradition, those stories were kind of uh, leaped over, like right. you read through them very quickly. Yeah. But some Talmudic scholars are now applying kind of a literary lens to the legal sections of the Talmud. That's really only in the last 30 or 40 years. So Rabbi Akiva is kind of like the Forrest Gump of the Talmud. He appears <laughs> in the background of yes. like many famous stories that yes. we sort of all know. Yeah. Will you tell us a little bit about him and then why you decided to write a whole book about him? I once thought of uh, calling the first chapter The Man Who Was Not There. Um, but I thought that was a little too provocative. Uh, the, what I mean by that is there's so much about Rabbi Akiva we don't know. We don't know anything about his parents. There are certain things said about him that, you know, just aren't true, like his father was a convert or his great-grandfather was a convert. That That's not, there's no text about that whatsoever. It's Rabbi Akiva fanfic online. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. So what do we know? Born well, around 50? Around the year 50. And that's an important date because he was old enough to be a conscious person before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year 70 CE. So that that kind of traumatic event happened within his lifetime. So that span from 50 to around 135 is really the crucial moment where, um, I would say, Israelite religion really began to morph into the Judaism that we know today in many significant fashions. So we have, when you actually look, as you did, at all of the stories we have about Rabbi Akiva, it seems like he's just every basic, like he represents everything. We have the mystical Rabbi Akiva who enters heaven and comes out safely. We have the martyr Rabbi Akiva. We have the legal scholar. We have, you know, the late learner who represents everybody. Do you, um, do you have a favorite Rabbi Akiva? Do you have a favorite story? <laughs> One thing that's really interesting about him as we see him in these stories is he's the smartest guy in the room. And um, you see that in his interactions with the other rabbis, often when there is a debate around the point of law, for example, they'll give three opinions. His opinion is almost always given last, as if now we get the real answer, right? <laughs> right? One time, he comes late to class. This class is being taught by Eliezer ben Hurkinus, who was his teacher and with whom he had a not very pleasant relationship, at least in my view, and he doesn't come into the classroom. He's outside, you know, kind of looking in the window. And, um, and Eliezer asks the students a question of law, and, and they say, the Torah is outside. And then he asks them a, a kind of a biblical interpretation of uh, a story, and um, they say, the Torah is outside. And then he asks them a third question. We don't, it isn't told what it is, but the students, as, as if in exasperation, say, Akiva is outside. And the answer to all the questions is, Akiva is outside. So he was really very much um, 
his his fellow students were very much in awe of him. Uh, his brilliance in the very first story that I write about in the book, where he decides to go learn Torah, you can see his brilliance, his intellectual brilliance, which goes from the beginning of his career until the very moment of his death in which he's teaching his students about Torah while he's being tortured and, and dying. But I've often said that if you were making a movie of Akiva's life, you wouldn't start with the story I started with. You would start with a somewhat more famous story, and that is, it's all about love. That his, he falls in love with this woman. She's the daughter. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a cliche. Obviously, Hollywood, all those you know, sort of Jewish producers in Hollywood. Are they, so, they're listening. So. Yeah. By the way, who's, <laughs> yeah. who's playing Akiva and, in this yes. movie? And have the movie rights been sold? Yeah. Not yet. I mean, maybe it's George Clooney, oh, you know. Yeah. But I really want a cameo. I don't know what <laughs> position exactly it would be, but maybe I'm an ox herder not, not, that comes by. Not Eliezer Horkin. <laughs> no, no, no. Right. Anyway, uh, you know, he falls in love with the, the daughter of a wealthy man. The, the wealthy man doesn't like... The, her his daughter marrying such a you know sort of both an ignorant person jewishly speaking and a um, kind of lower class individual from what we can gather and he he basically kicks his daughter out of the house and she agrees to marry him if he will go study torah and then he becomes the greatest sage of his time and in a great ending this is a really good ending he comes back to town and, um, of course, the, the father-in-law doesn't um, recognize um, this kid that he had kicked out with his daughter. And the father-in-law comes to this great sage to ask him a question. And when he realizes who Akiva is, he says, uh, you know, if, you, if I had only known who you were, but, of course, he wasn't that yet. Um, and they reconcile. So that's the Hollywood Happy ending, except then you also have to plug yeah, but let's in talk the, about death. The, re- the real ending. The real ending. Also, yeah. the fact that he like left his wife for twenty four years in the middle while she just like chilled by herself. Yes, yeah, that's like, true. That would not a make quite a great bit, movie. Yeah, that's like a quick montage. <laughs> a tiny in a bit movie. less romantic. Her like yes. crawling that's to like, him in rags. That's like Jessica Chastain. <laughs> yeah, that's his like eat, pray, love for, thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, I, I mean, what interesting about that? <laughs> I had occasion a couple of years ago to teach these stories to a group of teenagers at a synagogue and I broke them into pairs and had them work on the story. And I remember one kid says, what's the deal with that? When he gets <laughs> like, so I was, what's the deal with that? Um, to our eyes today, that story is um, clearly problematic. And yet at the same time, um, you know, feminist scholars have written quite a bit about that story, not surprisingly. Um, you know, he he says that she is responsible for all of his learning. He says to his students, treat her well because if it weren't for her, you wouldn't have been able to learn with me. For us, it's not enough. It feels weird to us in our times. And, um, and yeah, it yeah. makes like both of them martyrs then we kind of think yeah. of her. And it was just, it was Rabbi Akiva, right? The idea of dying, saying the Shema on your yes. lips, we get yeah. that from him. Yeah, and that's... that's uh, Kind of a little-known fact that, as far as I could tell, we all know this concept that you know it, it's considered a good death if you can die saying the Shema, and if you are a martyr, even more so that you say the Shema. And it appears that the the earliest story about that 
is the story of Akiva's uh, death, tortured by the Romans and saying the Shema as he dies. Um, and that later got picked up on by the martyrs, Jewish martyrs in the Middle Ages, etc. And Akiva became a kind of model for that kind of dying. It's an interesting story. It's a kind of complicated story in a way, because in some sense, it's pretty clear that Akiva is not, in his intention, trying to give them an idea, the students, an idea, oh, when you die as a martyr, you know, be, be sure to say the Shema. Instead, it appears that what he's saying is, even when one is being tortured, when the time the required time in the day in which one says the Shema appears, right. you say the Torture Shema. Torture is no excuse. And the students, the students say to him, Rabbi, even this? And yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it, it's a terrifying ending, and it comes, into, um, you know, it comes into the tradition in the liturgy on, of uh, Yom Kippur, where he's one of the martyrs that is remembered in that liturgy. But I do have a chapter at the end of the book. I didn't really feel it was appropriate to end it. um, Well, it's a downer, right? I (laughs) I didn't want to end it quite like that. But also because I felt um, Akiva lives on, you know. Um, I called the last chapter the afterlife of Akiva and how he becomes a hero for all sorts of, um, you know, all sorts of different kinds of, factions and people within Judaism, the mystical tradition, um, the legal tradition, and, you know, this very famous story about Moses on Mount Sinai, uh, and God is decorating the Torah with these little crowns on some of the letters, and, and Moses says, come on already, I want to give the Torah to the people, essentially saying, God, hurry it up, hurry it up. And God says to Moses, well, someday a guy will come along and he'll be able to interpret heaps and heaps of interpretations just based on these little crowns. And Moses says, well, I'd like to see that guy. And God essentially puts him in a time machine. Uh, They don't use that term, but in fact, it's really quite striking from a literary point of view. And boom, uh, Moses is sitting in the back of Akiva's classroom and he doesn't understand a thing that's going on. <laughs> so interpretation... It's like, that's not what the conti- guy meant. That's not what the guy meant. <laughs> um, Barry Holtz, thank you so much for being with us. Um, for the book is Rabbi Akiva. It's great. I read it on the subway and thought I looked very smart. So you too can do that. Um, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. I like Thank you. Thank much. you. Okay. Uh, see what you made me do? <laughs> And old rules, uh, new blacks with new stacks, uh, I already been the king, uh, bitch, you act, I'm just bringing it back like Jordan Packs. So, Mazeltovs this week, guys. Liel, got anything? Well, uh, we received a very lovely letter from a listener named Scott Vavertrick saying, uh, First, I'd like to say that I absolutely love Unorthodox. It's the only podcast that I make time for every week. The only person that I know that loves it more is my wife, Mel. Speaking of her, I was hoping that uh, I could hook her up with a Mazel Tov for her birthday. Her birthday is on the 21st of May. And like I said, she loves the podcast. And more specifically, she has a huge crush on... Liel! You know it. (laughs) And so, Mel Vavercheck... um, (laughs) You have really weird taste. 
בת סטיל, אני רוצה להגיד הרבה מזל טוב for your birthday from all of us here. יום הולדת. נו? שירה? Um, all right, I'm going to milk my special appearance for all I got. Yes, you I should. have two mazel tovs. One is obviously a huge shout out to my cousin Matan, whose bar mitzvah was this weekend. Yeah. And all of my cousins were in town. Matan, like, today you are a man. 37 of us kind of like Saturday night took over some like dive bar in the 80s. It was amazing. I love my family. I was like, how'd you get back to the 80s? Oh, it was just the streets. <laughs> it was that time machine that Rabbi Akiva was in. <laughs> You're like, Rabbi Akiva, why um, are you at this bar? You <laughs> are everywhere. my second mazel tov, I've been holding in for a while. This goes to Amira Mintz Morgenthau, who is our biggest fan in Berlin. She listens to the show every week. Dear childhood friend, she's hosted me in Berlin before. She's hosting me this Shabbos. And every time that I sometimes get frustrated with the show, which never happens, Amira reminds me how much it means to Jews living all over the world. So, Mira, mazel tov. Mira reminds you that it could be worse. You could be a Jew in Berlin. <laughs> I'm going to call you our fan of the week. I love that. Um, my mazel tov is to a friend of mine, Kristen Tingley, who will complete her conversion to Judaism today. She's an amazing person. She's Ooh. so... We will have a Jewish Kristen Tingley. I'm so excited. That's she, And amazing. she's like the nicest person what, I've ever I'm met. I'm like the interracial draft. Like, what a win. No, this is great. Yeah, Christian she's ours. Tingley. So, you know, welcome, Kristen. You welcome officially Kristen. know more about Judaism than we do after all those <laughs> classes. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and co-produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talishkin, who I have to say did a great job on the show today. Yeah. You, you like, might be replacing me soon, so I should probably step up my game. Rabbinic supervision this week is by the Meislin family, all of them. Kosher slaughtering is by uh, Steph Curry, the other Steph in my life. Actually, I'm the other Steph to him during NBA playoffs. Find Tablet Magazine on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. We record in Argo Studios, where they keep the secret Oval Office recordings. We're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Shalom, friends. Stephanie out. Thank you, guys. Very well done. Here's the offensive thing. It's not that he ate a candy bar when he told the entire world he was on a hunger strike. It's that he ate a really shitty candy bar. What did he eat? He ate a candy bar called Totit. It's, it's literally if you took cardboard and dipped it in diesel uh, and then packaged it as chocolate, uh, this is what it would taste well, like. Well, that's why he wants a greater selection of items but, available but, for purchase in the canteen. But the canteen off? Well, you know, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Okay, well, I support that one demand.